You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent forth, both ruler and redeemer, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise you up for for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Father, I want to thank you for your word for the promises that you've given us, for the hope, the faith, for the promise of salvation, Lord. Lord, I want to thank you for Enclave and the things that this church has been able to do. It's been a huge blessing in my life. I want to thank you for everyone here, and I hope that you all have a blessed week. Amen. All right, thank you for that, Anne. It's good to see all of you here today. Um, I wanted to start this morning by asking a couple of questions, and the first question I have is, uh, how many of you have experienced a situation where maybe you had a family member, or maybe you had a friend who returned to a bad situation? Anybody have had that? I think most of us have had. So I'm thinking of examples like, maybe you've had a family member who has relapsed into an addiction. Maybe you've experienced that. Uh, maybe you have a friend who has returned to a abusive, an abusive type of relationship. Uh, maybe you've experienced that, or, or maybe you are that family member or, or friend, so you know it from the other side. But the other question that I had for you guys is, what does that feel like? What, what does it feel like when you see somebody that you love, right, that you care about, go back into a bad situation, and they go voluntarily there. Uh, how does that feel, anybody? Hurtful? Frustrating? Disappointing? Scary because you don't know where it's going to go? Yeah. Heart-wrenching? Discouraging? What would you say? You feel, you feel powerless because, you know, and they, sometimes they even know that it's a bad situation, right? All those, and I mean, I'm looking around the room and I know, I mean, I know your stories, you know my story, and we have people in our lives where they, they go back to a bad situation. And on one level, it's kind of understandable and relatable because we all do that to one degree or another, but when we watch somebody that we love, that we care about, go back into that type of a situation, it is heart-wrenching, right? It, it, it is scary, and it is. Who said frustrating? John said frustrating. It, it can be very frustrating, right? You want to say to that person, man, don't you see how this is going to destroy your life? And why would you voluntarily choose 
slavery. And then on top of that, think about when you're focused on this direction, you're pursuing this, then your back is turned against God's deliverance. You're missing out on all that God is wanting to do, all the things that he's sort of set in motion. I, I've had several friends who have left rehab early. Now, so, there can be some legitimate reasons to do that, but a lot of them are illegitimate, right? And, and when they do that, you're just like, oh, man, it's just like you're wasting this opportunity, especially if you were part of the process of putting all the pieces together for that to happen, right? And you, you're like, oh, man. And so we miss out on so much when we turn our back to God's deliverance, and yet we do it all the time and we do it willingly. Um, when we think about the history of Israel, right, they, they do this all the time. They'll, they'll be delivered, they'll see miraculous things, and then they'll, they'll turn back. Uh, and, and part of our passage is, is sort of like aimed at that uh, portion of Israel's history, right, where Israel sort of turned their back on what God was doing through Moses, right, in the time of the wilderness when God was providing manna and quail and, like, all these different things. So that we read in verse 39 of our passage, our fathers refused to obey him, referring to Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, and so we've seen this kind of thing happen with ancient Israel. But then we're also seeing this same thing happen with the members of the Sanhedrin, right? They, they turned, ancient Israel turned their back on Moses and the deliverance that God was giving them through Moses. And now, in the Exodus, now the members of the Sanhedrin are turning back their backs to the deliverance that God was bringing through Jesus, in a new exodus, right? And so even though they're, they're, they're like, we're not like the ancient Israelites. We're in the promised land. We're working in the temple, right? But even though they were leaders in the temple, their hearts were in Egypt. And when our hearts are in Egypt, right, we are missing out on what God is doing. We become blind to everything that God is doing. And when I thought about that this last week, I, I just wondered, what are we missing that, that's happening all around us because our hearts are aimed at uh, Egypt? Um, we've been looking at this speech that Stephen has been giving before the Sanhedrin where he's responding to the charge that his message about Jesus, the gospel message, is coming against threatening some of their most cherished institutions, namely the temple in Jerusalem, the holy place, but also the customs of Moses. So those national identity markers that set them apart from the rest of the nations. That's what they put their hope in. They put their hope in, in the temple, and they put their hope in these national identity markers. And we saw how, and we've been seeing, how Stephen responds to these charges by giving this long speech where he puts the charges and the whole situation within the framework of God's history of redemption, his saving acts throughout, um, throughout history, right? And so 
he does two things when he does that, right? It's all going to culminate to Jesus. But the two things that he demonstrates throughout this speech is he reminds them, look, Israel has a long history of rejecting God's appointed messengers. And then secondly, God is not confined. So what, what Stephen is doing in all of this, he's trying to get the Sanhedrin to see that they have taken good things that were actually meant to point them to God's deliverance in Jesus. Right? That, that's what the temple was for. That's what the laws of Moses were for. Uh, Paul talks about that in Galatians. It leads, it's supposed to be a teacher that leads you to Jesus himself. But they took those good things meant to point them to Jesus, and they began to put their hope and identity in those things and worship those things. So they took good things, right, and they made them idolatrous things, and then they were enslaved. And that made them blind to all that God was doing. On their behalf, they were blind to that because their hearts were in Egypt. Right now, <clears throat> this is not the first time Israel has done this, right? Uh, Israel uh, turned their back on Moses, and they turned their back on the messenger of the Lord or the angel of the, of the Lord, and we'll talk about that. In their sin, they could not see, they missed the significance of who Moses was and who the angel of the Lord was. Right, so we're going to talk about, that's what I want to talk about this morning, is what they missed. What they missed about Moses, that's our first point, and then what they missed about this angel, that's our second point. So let's first talk about what they missed about Moses. In verse 30, verses 35 through 38, Stephen is going to remind the Sanhedrin about what ancient Israel, back in Exodus times, in in the wilderness, what they missed about Moses. And in so doing, by bringing it up, he's alluding to the fact that they have also missed things about Moses. That's why he's bringing it up. And subsequently, they have missed things about Jesus. So in these verses, we learn a couple of things about Moses. He was a deliverer who prefigured Jesus, and he was a prophet who predicted Jesus. So several times in these verses, verses 35 through 38, Stephen points out several ways in which Moses is a type of Christ. He foreshadows Jesus. He prefigures uh, Jesus. And we're just going to talk about a couple of those parallels, not even all the ones that he brings up. So one of the ways in which Moses prefigures Jesus is that both Moses and Jesus were sent by God the Father to rule and redeem. So if you look again with me at verse 35, a little bit into verse 35, it says this, This man, referring to Moses, God sent as both ruler and redeemer. So both Moses and Jesus were sent by God the Father. right? And you see throughout the book of John, especially John chapter 17, all these references to Jesus being sent by God the Father. In addition to that, they were both appointed to be ruler and redeemer. We think of Lord and Savior. 
But this, this word ruler is a special word that we've talked about before that sort of means not just like ruling from a throne, but more have the picture of like this trailblazer cutting a path through the jungle or something leading to a destination. So he's leading in that type of a way. So we can see how that would be related to Moses. He's leading them out of, the, uh, of, of uh, Egypt, right, to the promised land. So he's a ruler in that way. Jesus, uh, this word is used to describe Jesus in Acts chapter 5, verse 31. So they're both rulers, and they're both redeemers. The, this word redeemer means someone who pays a ransom price to release slaves from their bondage. So we can see how that would relate to Moses. But see, all of this culminates and points forward to Jesus, right? The New Testament says that God the Father sent Jesus and his death on the cross, his blood shed there, was the ransom price paid to release sinners enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. So that Jesus would say, like in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a what? As a what? A ransom for many. So he, so he then he pays the price for our sin with his own blood and he purchases a people and then he leads us out, right? As a ru ruler, a trailblazer type of ruler, he leads us out of our bondage to sin, death, and the devil to eternal life with, with God in a new heavens and a new earth being the first fruits of, of, uh, of the resurrection, right? This, we're all heading there. And we all experience that eternal life now and we'll experience more of it in the future. So Moses' role in the Exodus Right, prefigured, it pointed forward to Jesus' role now in this new exodus. So that's one way that Moses is a deliverer who prefigured Jesus. But there's other ways as well. Another way in which Moses does this is that he performs signs and wonders that accompany the salvation that he is bringing, the deliverance he is bringing, and is even part of that deliverance. So if you look back at verse 36... It says, this man, again referring to Moses, led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt. Right? He's going to mention three places where wonders and signs happen. Right? The first place is in Egypt, right, where we see the plagues happen. So the plagues are simultaneously these signs and these wonders that you've never seen before. And also what? Judgment. Judgment upon Egypt and actually judgment upon Egyptian gods, but we won't get into there. So that's, that's the first place where we see signs and wonders. The second place that we see signs and wonders in the Exodus, it tells us in our passage, is and at the Red Sea, both the parting of the Red Sea and then the collapsing of the Red Sea over the pursuing Egyptian army. That's another example of salvation through judgment. Right. Then he gives a third place where signs and wonders show up in the Exodus. It's, and in the wilderness for 40 years. So the manna that God uh, provided. Or the, the rock, remember the rock that was struck at Mount Horeb and then water comes out of it? 
I'm not going to go into it, but just read, read uh, uh, John chapter 7, verse 38, and just think, think about the rock being struck at Mount Horeb, okay? So there's these signs and wonders, right? But they all, they all point forward to Jesus, who also performs signs and wonders. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Uh, the, the, so signs and wonders is, is sort of like this hyperlink back to the Exodus, these outbreak of miracles that come in conjunction with God's deliverance, God coming to earth and bringing about and advancing his kingdom, right? So when we think about Jesus, right, when he performs healings or, or when he performs exorcisms, right? See, all the signs and wonders, both then and now, they are our demonstrations of several things, that God has compassion for his people, he hears their cries, but it's more than that, right? Because if God just heard our cries and just had compassion, and he was just like, oh, man, that's so terrible for them. It's just so terrible, you know? No, he, it's more than, he has, he has power, right? He has power to deliver people from their oppression, right? Illness comes as a consequence of the fall, oppression, Right? The, the kingdom of darkness oppressing people, right? The Egyptians oppressing people, right? So these demonstrations of power that, that tell everybody, God has the power to deliver you from oppression, right? And he has the power to sustain you on your journey home. So when you think about Jesus, right, he demonstrates this power from oppression, right, in his healings and his exorcisms, but his greatest sign, though, this is how John chapter 2 talks about it, his greatest sign is what? Dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, which is an example of salvation through judgment. God brings his judgment upon Jesus in our place, and that's the way in which we have Salvation. Jesus is then vindicated through his resurrection. And then he is exalted to the right hand of God the Father from where he rules. right? And he uses that authority to provide and give the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to continue the journey home. So what Stephen is doing is he's saying, look, if the eyes of the hearts of the people of Israel back then were open to what God was doing, then they would follow Moses. Likewise, if the eyes of the hearts of the Sanhedrin were open to what God was doing, they would follow Jesus the greater Moses. But instead, like Moses, they turn their back on Jesus and their hearts go to Egypt. So that's one thing that he's bringing up about Moses. He, he is a deliverer who prefigures Jesus. The second thing he says about Moses is that he is a prophet who predicts Jesus. In verse 37, we read the, these words. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me 
from your brothers. So this is from Deuteronomy chapter 18, which is a passage where Moses is warning Israel, do not look for guidance in the dark arts like the nations do. Right? The nations, they go to fortune tellers, they try to do divination, necromancy, sorcery, all these types of things. That's how they try to get guidance. And Moses is saying, we're, we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to be guided by God's revelation that he gives through appointed prophets. And all of that, Moses is one of them, all of that points forward to this ultimate prophet that is to come. Now what Peter does in Acts chapter 3 verse 22, he's addressing a crowd in the temple and there he identifies Jesus as this ultimate prophet and he cites Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now the rest of, of the New Testament, what it does is it, it shows how Jesus not only brings the word of God as a prophet like Moses, but he himself embodies the word of God. He is the word of God made flesh. And so he is the final revelation of God. So we see that in John chapter 1, verse 14, for example, verse 18, or Hebrews chapter 1, the first several verses there, God says, you know, I, I've spoken to you in all these different ways in times past, but now I speak to you finally through my son. The radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature. And in this way, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. So these are all the ways in which the Sanhedrin missed the significance of who Moses was and who Jesus is. Jesus is the greater Moses who leads us in a new exodus out from our bondage, not our bondage to Egypt, but something greater than Egypt. What stood behind Egypt? Sin death, and the devil. So if you think about the accusation, right, far from coming against Moses, right, the gospel is not against Moses. Far from coming against Moses, the proclamation of the gospel, right, the message that Stephen has been giving, that's why he's in trouble, that is the fulfillment of Moses in the greatest way possible. Right, but you, spiritual things, are spiritually discerned. And if your heart pines after Egypt, like the Sanhedrin's heart pined after Egypt, then you're going to be blind to certain things. Right? You're, you're going to miss it. Right? Because we need more than words. We need more than logic. We even need more than signs and wonders for us to understand the truth of who Jesus is and, and his gospel. It's, it's his, God, is, God uses words, he uses logic, he uses signs and wonders. God is not against any of those things, but only when those things are combined with the spirit of God who lifts the veil 
off the eyes of our heart so that we might see Jesus and his gospel for what it is, only then will we see. Right? If not, our hearts will always fixate on what we lack. Just like Israel in the wilderness. Oh man, if we could only go back to Egypt. Without the Spirit of God opening our eyes to see Jesus and his gospel, that's where our hearts go. And then we will return voluntarily to slavery and Egypt because that's what's familiar to us. And so all of this is to say we're in this battle, right, against the spirit and the flesh and dark forces that are trying to cover the eyes of our hearts from seeing the glory of Jesus and his gospel because the wicked one knows if we bask in the glory of Jesus Christ, King Jesus, this is, you know, sometimes Christianity is kind of reduced to principles, uh, like do step one, step two, step three. The Bible is clear that you, if you, if your eyes are open to the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel by the Spirit, Paul says that you will be changed from one degree of glory to another. So we're in this battle, right? But we don't fight alone, right? If you follow Jesus, the Spirit is with you. And then we have each other, right? So we, knowing this, we pray for, if you listen to the, the apostles were much more urgent about this than we are, right? The author of Hebrews in chapter three is like, man, we have to, we have to pray about this every single day. We have to meet every day, right? Because it's so dangerous. We don't think it's dangerous, right? But, but we're in this battle. And knowing that, Right? Because the enemies lulled us to sleep. But if, if knowing, knowing that, then we can pray for each other. And we can remind each other about the truths of Jesus and the truths of his gospel. I, I love what Matt said last week, right? Talking about Colossians. Let the word of Christ, which is the gospel, dwell in you richly. How, Paul? Admonishing one another, singing hymns and spiritual songs. In the ancient church, they used to do that antiphonally. Like, so they'd, this side would sing to that side, this side would sing. And they're, they're reminded, hey, the world is saying all this other stuff, right? Let's come together and remind ourselves of, oh, that's right. No, G no Caesar's not king. No, 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 no. Biden, Trump, whoever. No, no, no. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in charge. Not the bank who's asking for my mortgage. No, no, Jesus is in charge, right? And we remind, we're in that battle together. So the Sanhedrin missed it, right? They missed the significance of Moses. But they also missed the significance of a very mysterious figure that I want to go to next. This is our second point, right? They also missed the significance of this angel. So three times in this speech, Stephen um, makes note of this 
angel who appears to Moses. So like in verse uh, 30, verse 35, right, he talks about how this angel appeared to Moses in the burning bush, right? Then in verse 38, he makes reference to this angel who was with uh, uh, Moses in the wilderness along with the rest of the congregation in the wilderness. So who is this angel of the Lord? So let's think about this for a second. What does the word, we have a certain idea in our mind and there's some overlap between uh, the meaning that we have in our mind and the meaning of how this word is used in the Old Testament, but there's also some difference too. And so I want to bring some clarification to that, hopefully. What does the word angel mean in its most basic form? Anybody know? Who? Wow, you guys are... Oh, I thought, I, I, I thought maybe the answer was up there. Yeah, like, yeah, no, no, you guys know. You guys know. So, yeah, messenger, messenger. Now, in the Bible, there are uh, human messengers, and there are heavenly messengers. So, like, when it's talking about a human messenger, oftentimes it's talking about a prophet who brings God's message. So, this word that is translated angel is used to describe Haggai, for example, in Haggai chapter 1, verse 13. The word Malachi, you could translate that as my angel or my messenger, right? So there are human messengers, but then there are heavenly messengers, right? Spirit beings who carry out God's will in the world and bring God's message. So we think about the the host of angels that were announcing Jesus' birth, for example, in Luke chapter 2. But in the Old Testament, there is a unique figure known as the angel of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, or the messenger of Yahweh. Okay, so you have this messenger of Yahweh. And in the Old Testament, this messenger is very closely identified with Yahweh himself. So we first meet him in Genesis chapter 16, right? And in that passage, if you remember, Hagar, who is the maidservant of Sarai, she's pregnant by whom? Abram. Who's Abram married to? Sarai. So who's upset? <laughs> but she's the one who suggested it, you know. Um, Sarai's upset, right? And she is harsh with Hagar, and then Hagar flees to the wilderness, Okay, leads to the wilderness, and then the messenger of Yahweh meets her and speaks to her and tells her that he, he, the messenger of Yahweh, will multiply her offspring. Okay, and then in verse 13 of that passage, we read about her response. She says this, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Okay, in another passage, the name of Yahweh is in the messenger of Yahweh. Name is kind of like the essence of a person. Okay, then she says this, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly have I, uh, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So you have the messenger of Yahweh is very closely identified with Yahweh himself. 
Then if you go to Judges chapter 13, right there, the father and mother of Samson are there. The guy with the long hair, the judge of Israel, right? And before Samson is born, the messenger of Yahweh approaches the mother and the father, right? And lets them know that Samson is coming, right? Then they want to offer him some food. He says, no, make a burnt sacrifice for Yahweh. They give a burnt sacrifice for Yahweh. Then they watch the messenger of Yahweh go up in the flame, <laughs> go up in the flame of the sacrifice, right? There's too many things implied by that, and we're not going to go into it. Okay, so, but it's just, you know, <clears throat> then... So they don't recognize, they don't recognize that they're talking to the messenger of Yahweh. But then we read this in a little bit into verse 21 of Judges chapter 13. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, the messenger of Yahweh. And Manoah said to his wife, man, that was so amazing. Maybe we should ask if he should come back. We shall surely Die, for we have seen God. Why would Manoah, the father of Samson, say that? Because he saw God. And what happens when you see God? Okay, what, what does Exodus 33, 20 say? No one can see Yahweh and live. So there's a messenger of Yahweh who is simultaneously distinct from and equal to Yahweh who can make Yahweh manifest without people dying. Okay? If you go back to our passage, right? There it talks about the angel of the Lord in relationship to Moses and in relationship to the Exodus. Okay, and there's several allusions to Old Testament passages here. So if you look at, at verse 30, verse 31, verse 35 of our passage in, in Acts chapter 7, that's an allusion to Exodus chapter 3, where the messenger of Yahweh speaks from the burning bush. And what does he say? He says, I am the God of your father. Later he says, I am Yahweh. Okay, in verse 38, that alludes to uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 1, where the messenger of Yahweh says these words. Remember, this is the messenger of Yahweh speaking. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. Now, when you read that against passages like Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, in those passages, explicitly, it is Yahweh who brings Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land in accordance with his promises. So in the Old Testament and in Acts chapter 7, we have this figure in the messenger of Yahweh who is both distinct from and equal to Yahweh and can make Yahweh known without people dying. Who is this? <laughs> shh, shh, shh. 
Keep the tension up, uh, Carlton. Yeah. I think, okay, so not everyone agrees. You should know that not everyone agrees on this, but I think that the messenger of Yahweh is the pre-incarnate logos. The pre-incarnate word of God. The word of God before he became flesh. John chapter 1, verse 18 says this, No one has ever seen God. Doesn't that sound like some of the passages we read? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So there's a God who's at God's side who makes God known. He makes the presence of God known. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus tells Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then you have this passage in Jude chapter 5. We're almost like in passing. (laughs) Jude says this, he speaks of Jesus in this way, as the one who, quote, saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Jesus saved the people out of the land of, am I reading that right? So not only did the Sanhedrin miss that Moses prefigured and predicted Jesus, the Sanhedrin missed Jesus himself. Right? Then and now. Right? In the form of the messenger of Yahweh who led their ancestors out of their bondage in Egypt. Right? But see, when your hearts pine after Egypt, you, you can't see it. Your hearts are blind. And you will, you will miss it. Because your hearts are, are, are there in Egypt. Egypt is where our hearts go. When we prefer what is familiar over what God is doing. So think about the Sanhedrin. They are very familiar and comfortable with their role in the temple. So they don't want to pay attention to what, you know, We go to Egypt when we are not sure if we trust where God is leading us, whether it's good or not. We, We struggle. I struggle with trusting where God is leading, especially if it's new. And so what do we do instead? We return back to those things that are familiar, even if it's slavery. Because at least we know what we're looking at. And see, but when we, when we do that and we pursue the world, we miss everything that God is doing, all the things that he's putting in place for our deliverance. And so we're, we're, in, this, we're in this battle. And may God lift the veil 
over the eyes of our hearts so that we might see the beauty of Jesus. This greater Moses, this now incarnate messenger of Yahweh. And when we become so enthralled, see what we try to do Egypt better. <laughs> we try to manage Egypt better. You can't manage Egypt. Just turn away from it, right? And, and when you do, and you become so enamored with Jesus, you will forget Egypt. May God do that in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit. Please come, Holy Spirit, and lift the veil over the eyes of our hearts that we might see the glories of Jesus Christ, our King, our Ruler, our Redeemer. Help us to hear His voice and follow Him alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.